everybody. I just want to say that I only come for Paul. That's the reason I come to this church. No, 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 one of the many reasons. Thank you for your very kind words, Paul. And um, thank you to the worship team for leading us in such fantastic worship. I mean, you know, as you plan these talks, and then this is well, this happens to me anyway. I plan these talks, and then we're in church, and then all of a sudden we'll sing a song, and I go, "Oh, that's relevant," so I'll just stop and make a note, so I can, and then I go, "Well, that's relevant," so I'll just, you know, it seems like God's either God's doing something, or somebody's very smart, or both probably. But um, anyway, thank you guys for leading us in such wonderful worship, and the truth that we've been singing about this morning in our worship actually sums up pretty much everything I want to say. Everything I think the Lord is talking to us about this morning. I want to start with a verse from Ephesians. If you can stick the first slide up for me, please, Becca. And um, it kind of summarizes today's talk. And I think it's a word for us this morning. And it says, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And uh, Paul quotes this in the middle of a passage all about living in the light. He actually, it's prefixed, it's got quotation marks in it. They're not on, oh yes they are actually, look, they are on there. Um, it's, prefixed with, it's prefixed with the phrase, as it is said. As it is said, wake up sleep, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Nobody really knows where it comes from. Um, it's not a direct, where, it's, where he's quoting it from, it's not a direct quote from the Old Testament, although it does kind of echo some of the passages in Isaiah, um, particularly uh, the one that says, arise, shine, your light has come. It's thought that this may well have been an early Christian hymn that Paul was quoting from, a song or a poem that was known around the Christian community, similar to how we've sung this morning about God who's waking hearts to life. You know, this, it may well be that this quote that Paul was uh, quoting from was just one of the hymns that they would already know. It was certainly a truth that the Ephesians who he was writing it to uh, would know. And some of us, so I'm slightly taking it out of context today, um, but that's because he was quoting it anyway. And I think some of us just need to hear this today. And not just here with our ears, but here with our hearts. I wonder if some of us need a little bit of a wake-up call. Maybe there are parts of us that would feel like they're dying, or at least in a deep sleep. Maybe we love to worship, but we struggle to get into the right frame of mind. Maybe we've kind of tried to knit into a bond, into a community, and something's happened, and now we're not. Maybe... Our relationship or our marriage has fallen apart or somebody who's close to us has gone away or somebody has died. Maybe our kids have grown up and left home or someone's treated us really badly. Maybe we've never got over the disappointment or the pain and so we've come along to church and we've tried to fit in but actually we've lost sight of Jesus in the midst of all this. Our joy's disappeared and we feel ready to quit. We feel like we're on the edge of things. Wishing there was someone we could really open up to, scared to take the first move. Maybe we've heard all this, maybe you've sat through all my talks about hope and you thought, yeah, great, it's a great idea, sounds amazing, sounds wonderful, I just don't feel it. You know? Maybe you're thinking, you know, you've heard me talking about what happens after we die and you're thinking I feel dead already. Maybe our hope hasn't just faded, it's become a distant memory and we'd just love to feel something again or the joy or the, the joy of being alive. Maybe we just want to feel like God and us are friends again, instead of just about managing to be in the same room. And so I just wonder if for some of us we really need to hear this word this morning, wake up. If our spirits need to hear what God is saying, wake up, sleeper, wake up, rise from the dead. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. 
If you can relate to that, I'm just going to pray for you now and I'm just going to leave it there because it kind of sums up what I want to say this morning. So if that is you, just, you know, just open your heart to Jesus. Father, there are some of us here and we really need to hear that this morning. And we don't just need our ears to hear it, we need our hearts to hear it. Lord, we need to hear, wake up. Not from me, but from you, Lord Jesus. And so I just declare, wake up, sleeper. Wake up, rise from the dead because Christ will shine on you. He wants to. And I pray that into your hearts. And I pray that into each of us. That we would know what it is to be revived and renewed and fully alive and fully hopeful in Jesus. Amen. As uh, Paul said, we're at the conclusion of a series we've been running called Surprised by Hope, based on a book by Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. We've looked at all these different uh, uh, themes. Uh, So this is the last one today. By the way, just as an aside, next week, um, some really great friends of ours are going to be visiting. Um, They're called Andrew and Rosie McNeil. Um, Andrew and Rosie are the lead pastors at Birmingham, which is the place where Joe and I were for 20 years before we came here. They're also on the leadership group of the movement, the Vineyard Movement. They're here to do... Um, some leadership training on Saturday morning and they're staying to preach on Sunday morning and evening. So if you can make it next week, we'd love, we'd love you to be here. Um, I don't know what they're going to talk about, but it's going to be great. <laughs> um, today we're going to look at the last section of this uh, talk, Hope of the Church. I hope you're encouraged by this series because as believers in Jesus, we do have an incredible hope. Both for the future and for now, when much of society and maybe even many of the Christians we know seem to only have a negative outlook on the world, skepticism and fear and uncertainty, there's actually no reason for us to buy into any of that story. We are part of a much bigger story, a story where the power of death itself is just is defeated. We've just sung about it. Forever you are glorified. Okay? And that resurrection of the dead, it literally, it shows that anything is possible and it changes everything. And over the past few weeks, we've talked about heaven and earth, we've talked about a new creation, we've talked about salvation, we've talked about the second coming of Jesus. You know, people will argue, often argue, about how the second coming of Jesus is going to happen. The passages in the Bible are really hard to interpret. Tom Wright has his own take on it. I don't 100% get it. But as Paul said, regardless of how it's going to happen, the truth is he's coming. And that not only secures our future, but it demands a response from us. And when Jesus comes back, it will be to finally bring the kingdom of heaven on earth, to completely restore his creation the way he always intended it to be. He will finish what he started at Easter. The resurrection of Jesus proves that God has the power to bring the dead to life. He's been doing it ever since in many different ways. And that makes Easter Sunday, which is coming up in a few weeks' time, our most important celebration of the year. Joe um, was, has been arguing with us, not arguing, putting her point of view forward um, that we need to have balloons on Easter Sunday morning. And, and, uh, and, and I've gone, yeah, okay, whatever. And then I read, um, I read Tom Wright, who argues that if you're in the Church of England, um, after you've been fasting for 40 days through Lent in preparation for Jesus' death, okay, after you've spent all that time being miserable, then Easter, the day that we celebrate his life, should be a proper party. Well, you know, I'm pre-converted here. Party! 
All right, thanks. Calm down a bit. That's fine. Um, if you want to come and blow balloons up, you can see Jo afterwards. She's just telling me. Um, Tom Wright says, we should be celebrating for a week, not just for a day, and we should start with champagne for breakfast. So, I'll, I'll just leave that there. Uh, in, in truth, most vicars kind of celebrate for a day and then go on holiday for a week because they're so tired from all the preparations. We've sung this morning. The resurrection of Jesus is fundamental to the whole big story of God. And Paul sums it up in a passage in 1 Corinthians 15, which I want us to look at together. You will need a Bible if you've got it with you. I'm not going to cover loads of verses, just a few bits, but it would be helpful to have it open because I don't have it all up on screen. Um, You see, Paul writes this passage, which is all about the resurrection, and he writes it in response to a specific issue in the Corinthian church. And the issue is this. Some of the Corinthian church... They're not denying the resurrection. They're not saying, we don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. But they're denying that that means that Jesus' followers will also be raised from the dead. So he's saying, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of his believers. Even if you claim that's to be true. And so, checking in at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is beginning to address this issue with this church. He's pretty passionate about this, by the way. He says the same thing four times in this passage. Okay, He says, verse 12, If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So Paul is making a link between the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of everybody, and therefore our Christian faith. The next three or four verses, he repeats it. He basically goes through the same thing, exactly the same thing again. Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Jump down to verse 19. He says, if only for this life have we hope in Christ, then we of all people are most to be pitied. If Jesus' resurrection is only for now and not for the future, we might as well give up and go home. We're to be pitied. That's what Paul says. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. This is verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. That means those who've died. He's the first fruits. The harvest comes later. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. And as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. I love that verse. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each, verse 23, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Am I clicking again? Oh, okay. Each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to, the, to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, all authority and power. For he must reign until it's all, he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he's put everything under his feet. And it goes through the list of what's going to happen. I'm just going back to verse 22. I love this verse. It's kind of one of the great promises of the New Testament, isn't it? In Jesus is the possibility for life and hope, no matter what your situation, no matter what your circumstance, whatever you've done in the past, whatever you think disqualifies you from being with him, it's not true, because in Jesus, all will be made alive. 
We worship a God of life and no one is beyond his resurrection power. And as I said last week, he's reaching out a hand of rescue. And some of us, all we need to do is reach up and grab that hand. That's what Jo was talking about earlier with her word. What would that mean for you today? To reach up and grab the hand of Jesus. And as I also said last week, he rescues us for a reason. And the rest of this chapter, Paul goes into a long explanation of how it's all going to work out with spiritual bodies and mysteries. There's a great quote in there which Handel wrote into a famous piece of music called The Messiah, which goes, the trumpet shall sound and the dead will be raised. It's a great song if you're into that sort of thing. I won't attempt to sing it now. But it's basically, it features a bass solo and a trumpet. And, uh, and they kind of do this interplay anyway, later. Um, and finally, at the end of all this, at the, right at the end of this long, descriptive chapter, get to the last verse, verse 58. And Paul says, and what should our response be to all of this? Hey church, what are you going to do about this? And what he doesn't say is, so therefore, guys, kick back, enjoy life, be comfortable, prepare for a chilled out future in paradise. He doesn't say that at the end of this chapter. He doesn't say it anywhere, actually. He says this in verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. The things we do for God in the present are for a purpose. And they form part of the future. Let me say that again. The things that we do for God in the present form part, are for a purpose and form part of the future. Our role is to partner with God in building his kingdom. I used the phrase a few weeks ago, collaborative eschatology. The idea that as believers we are working with God to bring about his new kingdom, the new heaven and earth. We are bringing his kingdom power into the present day and therefore working towards it happening in the future that's kind of what Jesus instructed us to pray and do in the Lord's prayer when he says your kingdom come your will be done here on earth the Archbishop of Canterbury and a bunch of other archbishops and senior church leaders have uh, recently um, announced, launched an, an, an event that's happening this coming um, May and June called Thy Kingdom Come. How many of you have heard of it? Okay, it's a prayer initiative. It happened last year for the first time and it's happening again this year. Actually, it's happening right across the world. All, it's very simple. All they're doing is they're saying to all the Christians, shall we all pray together? And shall we ask God's kingdom to come? I'd love you to watch this little video, if, uh, if you guys can play that, um, just telling us a little bit. We're going to get involved in this later in the year, but just have a look at what Justin Welby has to say about it. There's a lot about this job that stops you getting too self-important. I remember being at some event, one it's of my colleagues bit. heard someone in the crowd whisper, isn't that the Archbishop of Canterbury over there? And the person's friend hissed back, nah, too short. When I meet Jesus Christ at the judgment, I know one thing. He isn't going to care what size of archbishop I was, or, I think, whether I was an archbishop. What matters is that I loved him, 
and sought to follow him, and above all, that I trusted in him alone for my life and my future. Because the most important thing I've ever done is to become a follower of Jesus. I took my first steps with him about 42 years ago. Over those years, he's been a faithful friend, a sovereign Lord, compassionate, forgiving, my ever-present saviour, everything in my life, the heart and foundation of all I am. Through the hardest and most painful times and in the best and most joyful times of my life, Jesus has walked alongside me. He's never left, even when I've wanted him to. When I felt ready to give up hope, he picked me up, and it's his love that has healed me and strengthened me. Following Jesus has been the core point of my life, and that's one reason I want everyone to hear his voice calling to them and to learn what it is to find his love, his call, his direction, his purpose. That's why I'm pledging to pray for more people to know the life-transforming love of Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm asking you, along with every Christian community around the world, to join me in pledging to pray as part of Thy Kingdom Come. So if you hadn't heard of that, that's a, a fantastic thing that's coming up um, middle end of May, beginning of June, and we will be taking part in it. We'll be putting, we'll be encouraging all of us to join in different ways and putting in one or two events and there's a tent on the green, some stuff going on down at the cathedral at Pentecost weekend, that's at the first weekend of June. But the point about this is not the events particularly, the point about this is that uh, we're going to be praying for God's kingdom to come and we're going to be doing it together because our prayers make a difference because as I said at the end of that chapter, as Paul says, our labour is not in vain and the things that we do have an impact now and in the future. Let me describe, let me read you a little section from the Tom Wright book about how he describes this dynamic of responding to what God's saying and inviting and being part of the kingdom. Let me read this to you. It's a little couple of paragraphs. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to fall over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something which will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, for one's non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed which spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honoured in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrection power of God into the new creation which God will one day make. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Everything we do in the name of Jesus is part of building his kingdom in the future. Now we know this of course here. We're a church of scattered servants. Our vision is to bring hope and life to our communities. And we don't just do that because it's fun. We do that, it is fun, but we do it because that's what we're called to do. You know, when we sometimes talk about, we have the thing called this time tomorrow and people come up here and they share what they're going to be doing as part of their week. That's why we do that stuff. 
Last week I listed out or tried to list all of the roles and professions that represented in this church because the hope that we carry is not just for us. It's certainly not just for the church. The hope we carry is for individuals and institutions. It's for workplaces and communities. It's for strangers and friends, many of whom are in need of hope and life and the message of Jesus, many of whom need to wake up and rise from the dead and let Christ shine in them. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? To how, how do you carry hope in your world? How do you make a difference? What does, how does God want to bring life to your context, to your community, to your place, to your space, to your people? What does the kingdom of God look like around you, I wonder? That's one of the challenges that I want us to think through this morning. I've been reading a book by a guy called Ed Purak. Those of you who've been around the vineyard a long time might recognize the name. And in fact, that's a picture of John Wimber from the 80s with a very big beard. And it's fantastic. It's a fantastic beard. Anyway, I've been reading this book called Classic Vineyard. And um, it talks, uh, it's just stories really from the times of John Wimber and and the early days of the vineyard. And um, I was reading this this week, one of the chapters, which is called Basila. Basileia, sorry, Basileia, which is a Greek word that translates as royal power or dominion or the right or the authority to rule. And John Wimber said about this word, Basileia, that it's the kapow of the kingdom of God. Okay? The kapow of the kingdom of God. A couple of weeks ago, we heard six different testimonies of God's healing power. Yes? Kapow. Last week on the streets, healing on the streets, two people made a decision to follow Jesus there and then on the streets. Kapow. That's the kingdom of God. And John Wimber, who started the vineyard, made many contributions to the world, but one of the most significant ones he made was he took this theological understanding of the kingdom of God and he took this Pentecostal experience of God's power and he married the two together and said, that explains why that is so. He was the first person to do that. And when the power of God is demonstrated and something miraculous happens, that's Basila, or as we now know, Kapow. And Purek is writing about this, and he's writing about the early days of the vineyard, and then he goes on to say, actually, he goes on to quote N.T. Wright. He says, "Our, our, our, our understanding of the kingdom has expanded even beyond what we felt and understood at the time, John Wimber. He said, although it's, not, it's, it's all about people experiencing the power of God in their own lives, but it's also about compassion and justice and creativity and global economics and fair trade and anti-trafficking and the environment and the arts. You know, God's kingdom regeneration, doesn't, it, it doesn't stop with individuals. And just for the last few minutes, Tom Wright suggests three things that the church should be doing in response to this message. And I just want to make a few brief comments about each. And the three are this, justice, beauty, and evangelism. See, our response to this kingdom message needs to look like justice, and beauty, and evangelism. And by justice, I mean God's plan to set the whole world right. The hope of the resurrection of Jesus and its implications, it demands a response to the injustice that we see around us in the world. 
on an individual level and on a wider level. Some fundamentalist Christians avoid getting involved in justice by saying, well, you know, the world is in a mess and there's nothing we can do until Jesus returns. Some people say that. I don't believe it's true. On the other hand, there's a, there was a whole social, and there still is a whole social justice movement where Christians, who are probably what you'd describe as liberal Christians, are fighting hard for justice. And they're fighting hard for justice in the world, but they don't actually believe the resurrection was true. And they're not in touch with the resurrection power. So it's like fighting with one arm tied behind your back. And we're called to live consciously between the resurrection of Jesus in the past and the, res- and the making of God's new world in the future. We're called to live in the tension between the now and the not yet of the kingdom. And God's resurrection power is fully available to help put things right that in God's eyes are just wrong. And so as a church, we practice justice in many ways. And you know about this. We try and reach out to those in need locally. We try and show the love of Jesus where it's possible to do. We teach practical skills. We supply food and equipment. We care for people. And further afield, the same. We, offer, we partner with people who are trying to do the same in some of the poorest and toughest places in the world. And as Duncan, our friend from Southampton, was encouraging us three weeks ago, we take seriously, we try to take seriously issues of global poverty and debt and trade imbalance and fair trade in the environment. Because global justice matters to God. And doing something about it is part of our response to Jesus' resurrection. It's, is this maybe something he's asking us to wake up to? You know, we celebrated a year or two ago about William Wilberforce, 200 years since, the, um, since slavery was defeated. A fantastic man in the power of God, who did some amazing things. And yet, you know, slavery's back, as you know. It's kind of hard to ignore. A small group of people from this church have been praying for about the last five years into the issues of global slavery. And, uh, and I've seen direct results in answer to their prayers. And I just want to tell you about one thing that's coming up. This is called a gift box. And this gift box, something like this, is coming to Winchester Cathedral in the middle of May. And this is all about raising awareness of human trafficking and slavery. It looks beautiful from the outside, just like the offer to get a job or to travel does. And when you get inside, you realize that actually things aren't quite what they seem. And so we're going to look for a team to man this in the middle of May. Debbie Dimer is running a project and a team. You can look at the e-press to get involved. It's just one of the things that we're doing as a response to the need for justice. You know, there's also fair trade food and clothes and ethical investments and climate awareness and all of these areas. You know, a few years ago, we lived in Birmingham and uh, we lived quite near the Cadbury factory. And uh, Cadbury make chocolate, as you know, and none of their chocolate was fair trade. And Jo decided that she would write one day to Cadbury's and say, look, our kids go to your school. Uh, We are local to you. We love your chocolate, but it needs to be fair trade, please. So she wrote a letter to the whatever corporate moth that is Cadbury's and uh, about six months later um, for various reasons I'm sure Joe's wasn't the only letter but they decided to make the dairy milk bar a fair trade bar and there was a big advert on the poster as we drove into church on a Sunday morning massive hoarding and it said dairy milk is now fair trade and our Becky who was about seven or eight at the time said mommy you wrote that letter and God answered your prayer isn't that fantastic we can do stuff to make a difference. We can do stuff to make a difference. A teenager I know was part of a group that led their school through a journey of becoming a fair trade school. It's meant that some of the, they've had to phase in new uniforms. 
This stuff makes a difference, whether it's micro or macro, whether it's an individual or an institution, the light and the life and the resurrection power of Jesus needs to have an impact on justice. Ask the Holy Spirit, where is that happening around you? Where does that need to happen in your world? And our response to this doesn't need to be just about justice. Tom Wright also talks about beauty. And we read last week in Romans 8 about the passage about creation groaning and waiting, almost waiting to give birth to a new world. Paints a picture, Wright does, that the beauty of this world is like the beauty of a violin. It's beautiful in itself as an object, but it's even more beautiful because of you, know, you know what it's capable of. You know the music that it's capable of producing. Or, or another example would be an engagement ring, which is delightful to look at, but even more delightful because of what it promises, what it means. And in the same way we can say that the creation that we live in is beautiful in itself, but even more beautiful because of the new creation it points to. And we live in between the two. And we have this incredible ability to bring forth life. I mean, we create new people. And we bring forth life in many other ways. God gave man the job of taming the animals. Sorry, taming the garden and naming the animals. Sorry. Taming the animals? Maybe he did that too. Um, We're meant to exercise the creativity that God has given us to make sense of and celebrate the world around us. And do you know what? Just a little personal issue here. Tom Wright says this, but I agree with him. The problem with some Christian art is if we're honest, it only actually really tries to reflect the Garden of Eden, the paradise. And that can just become a little bit trivial and a bit sentimental, possibly. And the problem with lots of art that we see around us in the world is it only really reflects the darkness and pain of what people are experiencing. And that can be pretty brutal. Whereas... If we're Christians with a kingdom worldview who understand the tension of living between the now and the not yet, then we must be able to find ways to reflect people's painful experiences and also point to the hope. I read that in Tom Wright and it reminded me of something Bono said. Now, you know me. I don't like to quote Bono too often. Um, But I watched an interview of him with uh, Bill Hybels one time, many years ago. And he was just talking about art. And he just made this comment about, he said, great art. And by art, by the way, I mean any kind of art. I don't just mean painted art. But great art can be found in the tension of two different ideas. In the tension of conflicting viewpoints. Living in the tension can produce the most extraordinary expressions. So if you're a U2 fan, for example, we're one, but we're not the same. That's one of their songs. I've climbed the highest mountain. I've run through the fields only to be with you. But I still haven't really found what I'm looking for. There's a tension and a restlessness. It reminds me of this book, The Shack. Who's read this book? Okay, it's about to come out in a movie or it's coming out in a movie. I'm not sure about the movie. I've read some uh, good reviews of it, actually. I'd quite like to see it myself. I love the book. I mean, The Shack isn't meant to be a theological description of what It's like the shack is meant to be a piece of artwork that helps us reflect on the pain that we're in and also try and understand the hope that we're offered to. It's a piece of art that sits in the tension of those two ideas. Do you get me? It's not the only example, but it's just one that came to mind. There are tons of great examples. And the reason it works so well is because it's relatable. So if you're an artist or a 
poet or an author or a songwriter or a dancer or a musician or an actor or a choreographer or anybody, frankly, who creates stuff. I really want to encourage you to push into that place where you can reflect the tension that's going on between the people that we see in the world around us and the kingdom of God that we know to be true and the hope that we know is true for the future. Because that's a really powerful place. And by the way, if you are one of those people, please don't limit yourself to art that is for the church. Okay? Because that can sometimes be a bit one-dimensional. And we have a much bigger audience. The world needs creative stuff that identifies with people's pain and expresses and reflects the genuine struggle but points to the new hope of creation. You know, we sang a song this morning, lift lift me from my grave, lift me from my grave and hold me up. Well, if you were going to be really strict theologically, I'm not sure that we can say that, but it's trying to express a viewpoint that's saying sometimes I just feel like I'm in my grave. And yet there's a, you know, do you get me? Yeah? Don't write to me any theological letters about that song. No, you can, sorry, you can if you want, that's fine. Um, uh, It's a great song. I love it. Um, As I encouraged us last week, we all have within us the seeds of kingdom creativity to bring hope and find solutions for the challenges which those around us face. You know, um, there's a guy who lives down our street and about three months ago at Christmas, we decided to have a... um, a party. We've only been trying to do it for about five years. We tried. To, we just just literally went and invited the neighbours to come round for a drink. That's as complicated as it got. And uh, one guy showed up who we'd not met. We just popped a note through his door, and he knocked on the door the night before the party. He said, "I'm so sorry, I can't come, um, but uh, would you?" Uh, he said, "I'm so sorry, I can't come. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I'm really sorry I can't come now uh, tomorrow, but, but thank you. I'm really grateful, and I'd love to get to know some new people. And we got talking to him, and it ended up that he stayed and had dinner with us. And um, it turned out that his story was that his wife had died um, nine months beforehand. And my wife, Jo, who's brilliant at this sort of thing, remembered the date. And this last week, which was a year since his wife died, she said, we need to do something. And we hadn't seen him really for two or three months since he popped round. We might have said hello to him in the street once or maybe twice, I can't remember. Anyway, so Joe and one of the kids, they made some brownies and they went down and they just took them round. Said, hey, we're just thinking of you. And um, that's the kingdom creativity that God could give any of us to make a difference in the world. That's just one example. Ask the Holy Spirit, what capture, what what? What does it look like in my world to capture and express this beauty? And, or, what are the problems facing my organization right now? What are the tensions that we're living through? And what are the seeds of hope or creative solutions that God could give us if we push into him? What's the Spirit saying? So I talked about justice. I talked about beauty. And the last one is evangelism. How does the gospel sit with all of this? What is the good news of the Jesus mean in the context of the new creation? See, many people understand the gospel message to be within a framework of heaven and hell. And that sin is stopping us getting to heaven. And that Jesus is the solution to that problem. And therefore, we need to accept Jesus and we will be saved. And that's not wrong. That's absolutely true. Millions of people are believers today because they heard that message and they responded to it. That's wonderful. But I believe the message is bigger than that. 
Because the power in the gospel doesn't lie in the offer of a new spiritual experience. It doesn't lie in the threat of the fire of hell. It actually, the power of the gospel is in the announcement of the kingdom of God and the invitation to become part of it. Jesus demonstrated this through his words and through his actions. And we can too. One more quote from Tom Wright. How can the church announce that God is good, that Jesus is Lord, that the powers of evil, corruption and death itself have been defeated and that God's new world has begun? If it's actively involved in seeking justice in the world, both globally and locally, and if it's cheerfully celebrating God's good creation and its rescue from corruption in art and music, and if in addition in its own internal life, the church gives every sign that new creation is indeed happening, generating a new type of community, then suddenly that announcement makes a lot more sense. That's the context within the gospel fit, within which the gospel fits. People want to be part of something new. And when people start to encounter and respond to signs of a new creation, that's when they start to get closer to God. Maybe they come to church, maybe they read the Bible, maybe they pray and worship. And transformation starts to happen. And there's that verse in 2 Corinthians. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. Sometimes that verse is translated, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. A better way to translate that is, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation is here. And there's a difference because every person who chooses to walk with Jesus is not just, hey, a new creation, popped another one out. It's not like that. Every person who chooses to walk with Jesus is part of the new creation. They are a prophetic promise of what is to come. We are a prophetic promise of what God is going to bring. We are further proof that the kingdom of God is being made and that resurrection life is possible. Last Sunday night, we baptized Hannah here and she told her story of how she'd come to Jesus. It's a symbol of the new creation. Every time we take communion, which is what we're going to do in just a minute, we're celebrating what Jesus has done And we're reminding ourselves that in him, we are part of the new creation. So whoever we're called to be, wherever we've been scattered, whatever we're doing, whoever we are, we are bringing the hope of Jesus, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of new creation, and the kingdom of God. We are the carriers of the message of hope. And our lives and our words should declare, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And I would love to give you an opportunity to encounter Jesus, to encounter that resurrection power for yourself today. All of you, all of us. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to take communion together. And then we're just going to open up for ministry. And if anybody wants to receive prayer today, if you need a fresh encounter with Jesus today, if you need another dose of hope today, this is the opportunity. Why don't you stand together? Have we got some people who are going to show? Who are going to lead communion? Brilliant. Paul, could you just make sure that they get organised? Thank you. Wonderful. Now, when we come to the Lord's table or come to communion, this is an opportunity for us to remember what Jesus did. This is the way that he instructed us to do this. He said, I want you to drink this wine. 
eat this bread and it's a symbol of what I've done for you when I died for you on the cross and in that is hope and life even just in the physical remembering of what he did for us and the taking of bread and wine is new hope and life so as you come come prepared come expectant come ready to meet Jesus you might think well how am I going to meet Jesus it's just a bit of bread and a bit of juice but but just prepare our hearts for that I'm going to pray just practically anybody who knows and loves Jesus and wants to receive communion today is welcome to do that Um, how we do it in this church is we take the bread and we dip it in the juice or the wine and then we and then we take it together and one of them is um, gluten free is it this one over here yes great so we have stations at the in the four corners of the room. Why don't I pray? Lord Jesus, we've talked about the hope of resurrection, the hope of new life. And all of that can, is only possible because you died for us and because God's power raised you from the dead. So now as we live in the tension between what's begun and what's coming, we once again pledge our allegiance to you. We, kind of, we set our hearts on you again. And Lord, as we, as we come to your table, as we come to communion, as we come to bread and wine, bread which was broken, which reminds us of your body, and wine which is drunk, which reminds us of your blood on the cross. As we come to that, may these symbols be to us the reality of your hope and your life. May your spirit flood in and renew and restore and refresh. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the guys are going to play gently and when you're ready, please feel free to take communion. Go to one of the stations. If you want to particularly receive prayer, I'll give an opportunity for this at the end, but if you just, having received communion, if you want to just kind of bring yourself before the Lord and you want to respond, we would love to pray. If you'd like to receive prayer for anything I've talked about, we'd love to do that. We'll be here. Just come and stand here anyway once you've taken communion. But let's go for it. Oh uh-huh. 